Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. We were told technology would make our lives easier and more convenient, but technology just seems to have made things more complicated and confusing. As Christians, what does our faith have to do with these pressing issues of life in a digital age? Well, in a new book, Following Jesus in a Digital Age, you will not only be challenged on how technology is shaping your walk with Christ, but you will also be equipped with biblical wisdom to navigate the most difficult aspects of our digital culture, including the rise of misinformation, conspiracy theories, social media, digital privacy, and polarization. God calls his people to step into the challenges of digital age from a place of hope and discernment grounded in his word. How will you follow Jesus in the digital age? And here to help us answer that question and talk about just what is the digital age is Jason Thacker. He's chair of research and technology ethics at the ERLC. He's also a professor at Boys College, author of a few books, and here to talk about following Jesus in a digital age. Brother, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jared. First thing I want to ask you is what exactly is a research Tech, chair of Research and Technology Ethics. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> it's a mouthful for sure. It, it kind of yeah. corresponds with our name, which our full name is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the right. Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we love our acronyms in the Southern Baptist Convention <laughs> um, and long names. But yeah, essentially what I do is I get to oversee all of our research in Christian ethics. And then one of the specialty areas that I have is technology ethics. I'm thinking about how do we apply the Christian ethic in an increasingly digital age where we have things from artificial intelligence and chat GPT and a lot of the chat bots and questions surrounding that all the way over to transhumanism, issues of social media and how technology is forming and shaping us as people. So this is like uh, Blade Runner type stuff. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> Your uh, research chair of Blade Runner at ERLC. That's just what I'll, uh, I'll put that on the business card. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I would love to talk about some of the things like, especially, what is it? Uh, deep fake. That's what it is. Oh, yeah. Where it's like the rising sort of threat of fake, you know, fake news or fake you know, false information being spread by, you know, faking politicians or celebrities or different things like that. Is there the threat of, you know, even the ordinary citizen being mistaken for, you know, committing crimes or spreading it, false information, those sorts of things. That's just the tip of the iceberg for an increasingly complex and morally confusing, I think, what you're calling the digital age. And, and you cover a variety. I mean, this is not a big book, but you cover a variety of of those sort of naughty topics. Not naughty isn't bad, but, you know, naughty isn't a knot of things. The first thing I want to ask you, though, is uh, just based on your introduction, you kind of lay out the idea that we're being discipled, right? The, the the stuff we're swimming in is catechizing us in some way. Your introduction is called, We Are All Being Discipled, But Not How You Might Expect. I wonder if you might talk about that for a little bit. What does that mean? Yeah, that's one of the funny things. When you talk about technology or social media, often, especially in the church, but even kind of the wider culture, uh, there's an idea that technology is just a tool. It's a tool that we use. We can use it for good things or we can use it for bad things. But essentially, it's all about the person using it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But one of the things we've seen, especially in the last few years, um, is that 
maybe technology is actually shaping and forming us more than we think. Maybe it's altering uh, the way that we see God. Maybe it's altering the way that we see ourselves and understand what does it mean to be human? Or it may be even the world around us, including our neighbors, where we start to treat people as if they're not image bearers of God, that they're just simply avatars to be dunked on or someone to get in an argument, but they're not really flesh and blood human beings like ourselves. The thesis here is that Technology is actually shaping and forming us. So it's not just a tool. It's actually a lot more than a tool. But a lot of times people get a little uncomfortable with that and they say, yeah, I don't I don't totally agree. I think it's just something we use for good or bad. But when you look biblically about the way technology is portrayed, not only in the scriptures, but even kind of the ethical principles and starting to think through these things, you know, I'd venture to say that most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we probably grab our phones almost immediately, not because there's a lot of notifications, but maybe we wake up thinking there will be a lot of notifications. We expect to see those little red circles all over iPhone about all the things we missed. So we kind of do our run through of our email and social media and check things and check the weather and notifications and breaking news and scores from last night's game. And that might even happen before we use the restroom. And reality is our phones, probably even during this podcast, we're probably having our phones within about a foot of us. And that stays there the whole day. We are constantly connected to our devices and so much so that we probably start to feel a little uneasy uh, when our phones aren't right next to us. I know a common conversation in my household is, hey, have you seen my phone? Why (laughs) is that? Why do we feel like we have to be constantly connected or so much so that now it even happened to me yesterday where I was like, oh, I think my phone's buzzing. I always have the sound turned off and on vibrate. And I thought, oh, maybe my phone's buzzing, pulled it out of my pocket. Nothing. Why did I feel that? That's called phantom leg syndrome, where I felt like something was (laughs) happening and it really wasn't. That idea is like, why do we feel uneasy when we can't find our phones? Or why do we feel the need to have wearables so we can be constantly connected? What is all this technology doing to us? So one of the things that in the book and kind of an underlying text, a biblical text is Romans 12.1. Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul there is assuming and kind of he's assuming you are being conformed. It's not a question of if you're being conformed to this world, it's you are being conformed to this world, but you should be transformed by the renewal of your mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the primary ways that we're being conformed to the world is through our, our technology use, through these tools, that they're having a profound shaping effect on us. So one of the kind of uh, provocative things that I've said that uh, not everybody loves is that actually technology is one of the primary disciplers of you and your people and your family. It's shaping the way that you see the world around you for good and for ill. And that's something that's a little bit more than just a tool we use. It's actually something we have to dig into with biblical wisdom and slowing down and asking the hard questions of what is technology? How is it forming and shaping me? And what is that? How is that affecting my relationship with God, my understanding of myself and the world around us? You took my second question, which was why is our phone so addictive? (laughs) Um, We get in these loops. There's just so much on it. And what's hilarious to me when I am self-reflective is I'm really in a rut. I really just sort of, I I don't have a million social media accounts. You know, I look at Twitter and I look at Instagram and I look at my email and occasionally Facebook. I'm not very active on there, but I find myself just sort of bobbing back and forth between those four things. And I think, man, this has access to the universe on here. And I'm just in this little kind of yeah. mouse, you know, labyrinth. Uh, there's something about, I don't know, the, the, the clicking 
I don't know if it's a dopamine thing or something like that, but um, one of the things that you get into is the sort of access to information. What that does to us, I was trying to explain to some folks, some younger folks recently, that when I was their age, when you didn't know something, you just didn't know it. Maybe you go to the <laughs> library. <laughs> maybe, maybe you call, you know, information and, or, or call the, uh, you know, call the info desk or help desk at the library and see if they could look it up in a book. But if it wasn't in an encyclopedia and you couldn't find it in a library, you just didn't know it. There was a movie my wife and I were just watching this last week where there was a scene where the, this there were two couples and they were trying to figure out the name of an actor. I think it was the, what was the name of that guy in this thing? And one of the guys was going to, you know, pull it. He goes, as they're trying to think of it, one of them goes, well, I'll just look it up. And he pulls out his phone and the other guy stops and goes, no, don't look it up. Let's just not know. <laughs> and it was a beautiful moment. I just thought this is actually really beautiful. The idea of just being okay with just not knowing something, yeah. like thinking about it, trying to remember. And if you can't, you just don't know. Talk to us about the threat. Maybe you don't call it that, but just the impact of having access to all of this information. Yeah. You, you kind of juxtapose access to information with wisdom. But what is the impact of having all this information at our fingertips 24-7? Yeah, I think first kind of getting back to what you originally said is why our phones are so addictive. They're designed that way. Yeah, They're not these neutral tools that we utilize and kind of engage with, and it's all about the way we use it. They're actually designed. They have inherent values, and they have, they're trying to get us to act a certain way, whether it's to buy that product or to swipe again or to some. So it is there's a, an addictive quality in many ways, um, and this can be a good thing. It's not so one of the things that I think happens in a lot of times with conversations about technology is, well, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? You have to pick one. And I want to say a biblical account, when you think about biblical wisdom, it's to say that, yes, there is a lot of good here. God did give us the ability to create these amazing tools. We have access to more information than past generations had in their entire lifetimes. And we have that in our phone in a few milliseconds of Google searches or a Logos Bible software or whatever. We have access to immense amount of information. But access to information and just knowledge for knowledge sake isn't the cultivation of wisdom. You can know a whole lot and be an incredibly unwise and uh, sinful person. That doesn't just because you know a lot doesn't actually make you a Christian even. It's a change of the heart. It's not just a change of uh, having a bigger brain or a bigger mind. That doesn't neglect or say those things are bad, but it is to say it's a lot more than that. And so what I try to do in the book, and especially kind of in that information-saturated age, is uh, there's an author, Alan Jacobs, writes that uh, the Internet age, especially our digital age, is kind of like a battlefield uh, triage where we're just jumping from one thing to another, whatever seems most important. And I said, like, just like you, I kind of find myself in these little ruts where I'll like, I'll check Twitter and then I'll go over to Instagram and I'll go back to my email and I'm like, I wonder what's on Twitter. And I go right back to Twitter and keep going. Well, not only is it designed that way, but what is that doing to me? What is it doing my perception of truth, my perception of reality, where I'm just jumping from one thing to another and I'm not able to dig deep? So while I don't want to reject and say all technology is bad because it's definitely not, it can be used for God glorifying purposes to build the church at the same time. It does have some negative effects. So in the book, I kind of talk about the nature of wisdom and saying and kind of draw a parallel between theology and ethics. Theology is what God has revealed to us, especially in the scriptures um, about who he is and having that knowledge is helpful. 
but it's also putting it into practice, which is our ethics. It's about what do we do in light of those things. And that's the beautiful thing about the scriptures is not only is it full of knowledge of God, but it's also full of how we should live in light of that knowledge. And we see that really magnified just beautifully through the wisdom literature. So it's funny to me, and a lot of listeners probably realize this as well. When you go read some of like the Proverbs or the Psalms, or you get into like the book of James, you're like, I'm not sure, but they may be writing about Twitter right now. Think about James, <laughs> James 119, to be slow to speak, slow to anger and quick to listen. It's like, I'm pretty positive that's about Twitter. Yeah. The tongue like, is a fire, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so there's two things in that. Not only is the scripture talking about cultivation of wisdom, so knowledge and our actions and seeing that put together in our, our worldview and how that kind of affects the way we live. So there's that aspect. But the other part of it, too, is that the Bible is calling us to a distinct way of living um, amidst a lot of these things. And it's showing us that a lot of the challenges maybe that we face today especially in a digital age that seem new and novel and past generations didn't have to deal with. Yes, there's some new opportunities, but at the core of it, at the foundation, they're the same age old questions that we've always been asking. Is there a God? What is he like? What does it mean to be human? How am I to live in this world? We see pride and sin and vice and arrogance and all of the things from the very beginning of time. It's just playing its way out in a new way. So one of the things that especially in terms of like Christian ethics, a lot of times people say, well, the Christian ethic really doesn't have anything to say about artificial intelligence or social media or technology and things like that. Actually, it has a lot to say because it's not addressing just a specific context. It's addressing these core human emotions and pride and arrogance and our sin and seeing how we can be transformed, that renewal of the mind that Paul is talking about in Romans 12, having our minds renewed, having our entire lives restored by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Christian ethic, the Bible is more than sufficient to navigate these challenges that we face today from deep fakes and artificial intelligence and social media. It's that we have to take that time to slow down, to be reflective and to think deeply about these big pressing issues, not to panic, but also not to withdraw. Is there a parallel between uh, the disconnect and information and wisdom? We can have so much information and so little wisdom at the same time. And the idea that we can be more connected than we've ever been, yeah. access globally and as relationally suffocated as we've ever been, right? Yeah. We're, more, we're more connected, but at the same time, we're more relationally disconnected. Talk about that tension a little bit. How, how does having access to everyone at all times, why doesn't that make us more relationally yeah. satisfied or even relationally competent? I, I find mm -hmm. that really fascinating as well. We've become more socially awkward and more <laughs> socially dysfunctional despite the fact that we're more socially connected than we've ever been. Yeah. Well, that's kind of some of those those false and almost broken promises. So many of us who were around kind of the advent of social media, you remember the big promises that it yeah. was going to connect the world. We were going to have deeper and richer relationships. We were going to know things and connect with people all around the world, but also in our local communities. And we were going to have this kind of great democratization of information. Everyone is going to have access. It's going to be freedom and equality and it's going to be great. And, you know, some of those things actually are true. 
I actually do know more about what's going around the world as it's happening for good and for ill. Um, I also have friends, even like yourself, like we've never actually met in person. So through social media and through digital technologies, even like this, we can connect together. So there is a, a connection, but I would, I think it's a stretch to say that there's a relationship. And the way that I say that is I often will meet people from the online spaces where I originally met them and meet them in real life. And I make it a point to say it's good to officially meet you <laughs> because there's a there's actual relationship that takes place. Why? Because we're embodied souls. God created us with bodies for flesh and blood relationships with one another. And to me, it was kind of an indictment when a few years ago we moved to our new neighborhood and I started wanted to start to kind of get to know neighbors. There were a lot of issues on why we didn't get to know a lot of people very quickly, but it, it hit me one day. I know more about people that are across the nation or across the world than I sometimes know about people 20 feet from my doorstep. Why is that the case? Why is it that I might feel more connected to a pastor or preacher that's not in my local context than I do my own pastor or preacher that I see every single week? Why is it that I know more about people all across the nation than I do about my small group that I meet with every single week? Why do I feel like I have a closer relationship? Now, there are some good aspects of that, being able to connect on very specific issues and be encouraged and challenged. In that. And I know my wife that went through a lot of health issues and being able to connect with people in a similar situation and a different context, but that we're going through that was helpful and beneficial for me and for her. But there is something about missing that kind of relational factor, that depth that only happens in flesh and blood. It's not convenient. It's not efficient. We know that good relationships are not convenient or efficient. They're often really messy. They're often really hard. Um, and in social media, you can just say, I'll unfollow them. If that's being difficult, I don't want to deal with it. I'll just move on. So there's a shallowness, but I don't want to say that the connection is bad. It's just that you can't actually um, obtain that relational depth that we've actually been created for. Yeah, the depth is certainly something that's missing when you ha when you can't essentially be with someone, see yep. them through. But at the same time, increasingly people are living their lives or at least a version of their lives online sometimes the you know the you can know more about your neighbor from looking them up on next door or facebook or whatever it is than it is just observing them or even maybe even having a conversation you know twice a week as you're you know getting your trash cans or something like that but at the same time it's not really a relationship it's not really relational knowledge it's it's what they're choosing to put yeah um, online, you talk about the the curated age in your book here, uh, pursuing responsibility in a curated age. What do you mean by by curation in in this sense? Yeah, I think you had a really important point there that a lot of things that we, quote, know about people is the things that they've chosen to show us. I right. think all of us have seen the Instagram versus reality, you know, the 700 shots and the perfect lighting or the the space around what's happening when you get that perfect Instagram photo. Um, and I think that's kind of a unique to Instagram, but not totally. I mean, that happens on Twitter even as I want to be seen as someone who reads a lot. So I'll post a whole lot of quotes and uh, new books that I just purchased 
this, even though I'm not actually reading them and they're just hitting <laughs> my shelves. Like right. there's a lot of things uh, that kind of go on with that is that we're portraying ourselves in a particular way, which kind of goes back to the chapter right before that about the way that we understand truth and reality is that we have come to believe, um, especially in our, our contemporary age, that we're in control, that it's all about us. It's about me, 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 because not only of the curation that we'll talk about here in a second, but even the idea that it's all about, it's my truth, it's my reality, it's how I feel on the inside. That's what's true. And we see that cut across all kinds of social and ethical issues from issues of sexuality all over to te- issues of technology. Because we live in a digital age, technology is fueling and shaping every single aspect of our life. It's not just about how you use social media. Technology is actually shaping the way that you understand your body and that you understand relationships and you understand truth and reality. You see that with conspiracy theories and fake news where we manipulate the truth to serve our purposes. It's a very, uh, to use an ethical term, a utilitarian use of truth. It's all about what do I get out of it? What's the benefit, the net benefit for others or for myself? But kind of getting into that idea of curation, this is something that fuels that. Why? Because I log online to these social media accounts. I have my platform, my feed, my this, my that. Well, all of that personalization, and it's, it hit me one day because my wife, obviously my wife and I live in the same household. We share a lot of similar interests, not exactly the same, but we have very different social media feeds. So much so that a very common conversation in our house is, hey, did you see this online today? And 99% of the time it's no. I didn't see that. What's that about? How did you see it? But I didn't see it. Like I got the breaking news, but you didn't. Why? Well, a lot of that comes down to the personalization. We see this in marketing where you'll get specific ads based on your specific interests that kind of travel with you throughout the internet. Your feeds are actually often very personalized through algorithms. Um, We'll talk about the algorithm. There's actually millions of algorithms that all serve different purposes, Uh, but they're shaping and and there's some good good aspects of that too. I don't see ads for random things that I don't care about. Um, I don't see a whole bunch of people that I don't care to follow or issues that I care to follow or whatever. You know, I'm not a huge NFL fan. I know you're a huge NFL fan. You probably get NFL specific ads and content that I don't get. I'm more of a college football fan. Um, That's just one of those things that it's convenient in some ways, but that also can have a very distinct and kind of shaping uh, nature of altering reality around us to think that, you know, everyone seems to be talking about this. Everyone seems to be on Twitter or this is what everyone cares about when, you know, the majority of people don't. It's just people in your kind of narrow kind of niche niche of a world. And so we're, we live in an incredibly curated age, meaning that things are personalized and shaped and kind of set up just for us. It's about my post, my feed, my this, my that. And while I, again, I'll say that there's some good aspects of that, there's also some really damaging aspects of that. And so one of the things that we see that kind of playing itself out is, well, the algorithm made me do it, or social media did X, Y, and Z, or someone needs to fix these social media companies. And that's true. Let's have those conversations. But you also have some responsibility. The people you follow, the things you read. Also, what do you do with that information? How do you respond? Um, Even things like sharing things that you haven't read. Um, I, it kind of hit me one day. It's like, you know, Twitter years ago had this thing where you went to retweet something and say, do you want to read this first? And you're like, yeah, I probably should. Now, most people probably just went right through it. But that little bit of friction. 
that little bit of slowing down is actually wisdom. It's slowing down not to be so reactionary, but to be more proactive and engaging and thoughtful and full of wisdom. And so, yes, we do live in an incredibly curated age, but it's not just those people over there that need to fix the Internet and fix social media. It's actually something that I need to reexamine my own life as well. So it's kind of it's not an either or it's more of a both and. One of the impacts of this, the kind of algorithm or the just the I don't know, the reinforcement of, I don't know, confirmation bias, maybe even is, is the impact on identity, how we mm-hmm. identify with certain tribes, which reinforce our own, our sense of self. I think we see even the significant impacts of that, negative impacts of that in things as extreme as like, you know, incels and 4chan radicalization. But Perhaps more common and is uh, the transgender idea and sort of the social reinforcement where folks, you know, find their niche online, their community, so to speak. And then whether it's algorithm or just confirmation bias or just their own habits, that those, you know, identifying messages, those prospective identities become reinforced by what I'm reading and therefore and who I'm reading with and who I'm sharing with and that sort of thing. Blow that out for us a little bit. How does that, you know, we can talk about the extreme examples of the transgender issue and all kinds of sexual moral chaos, but I think it has real implications just for the the kind of balkanization of evangelicalism. Yeah, um, We have our own sort of tribal identities and identifiers and tribal affiliations that serve to kind of other the others and reinforce our own. How is the, you know, identity... I don't know if it's identity politics, but just the identity idea. How's that impacting the church? Not just on the, you know, those of our mission field, but ourselves. Yeah. What's it doing to us? Yeah. And that's one of those formative aspects of technology to kind of go back to the original thing where we're talking about what is technology. It's not just a tool we use, but it's actually something that's deeply shaping and forming us, even discipling us. And one of the ways it's doing that is that we start to build up kind of not only these false personas about the way we want to present ourselves, but also the people that we want to identify with. Um, It's something very, very common throughout society today. Um, As you see, it's an us versus them. It's those people over there. They're ruining everything. They're the baddies. You know, we're the good people. Um, It's all about kind of us versus them and that polarization and that tribalization. And this transcends politics. This isn't just a left and a right thing. There's this in college football, SEC versus the world or Tennessee versus the world. Like it's all about us versus them. We're the good people. They're the bad people or we're going to have these identities. In some sense, having an identity is very common and natural. We want to be identified with certain people. Um, As Christians, we want to be identified with God most of all. But we kind of uh, seen this kind of fracturing in our society where there's these new kind of sub-identities that kind of flow, whether it's our our sexuality and our gender identity, our political identities, our sports identities, our whatever identities. We're all identifying and portraying ourselves in a particular way. And part of this, and we don't have to unpack this at all, is kind of our product of modernity. is kind of how we got here ethically and philosophically. This is, uh, there's a lot of research that there's a lot of this, this tale isn't just, you know, this isn't an issue that just happened in the last 10 years. This really has uh, roots back hundreds of years into thinkers that you may not even know about or even have ever read or actually deeply shaping and forming the way you see the world around you. And technology is like an accelerant. 
it allows that connections. It allows those identities to be built and to be formulated and to be crafted um, in very unique and very specific issues. Not only do you have different versions of Twitter, always people talk about like black Twitter or Baptist Twitter or whatever like that. So we have those kind of unique, but even inside of that, we have our own kind of unique identities. And that's kind of natural in some sense, but it's also going to be incredibly damaging, especially for the body of Christ, where we don't identify as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we're in different denominations and affiliations and things, we start to let the second level, third level, and even fourth level issues rise to kind of be first order issues. This is where Dane Ortland has been incredibly helpful in finding the right hills to die on his little book from Crossway a few years ago about theological triage. Al Mohler has done this. Um, that can also be applied to ethical and social issues as well. It's not just about theology and theological doctrine, it's ethics and society and politics that we let these third and fourth and fifth level issues kind of rise to the fray. So there's a great segmentation. It's not about, it's always us versus them. Even if the us is just a couple of us, you know, who magically got everything right and every, everybody else is kind of damned to hell because they didn't get it exactly the way that we wanted. But yeah, there's this identity kind of that drives it. And so what I try to do in that chapter specifically is kind of reframe the idea of identity. First, it's um, our identity with God, but also our identi identity is the church. What does that actually mean? How do we transcend some of these things? Not by, cowering from truth and not speaking truth, we should do so. We're to speak truth. We're to boldly proclaim truth. We're to give a reason for the hope that's within us. At the same time, we're to do so in a grace-filled manner. It's truth and grace. It's not either or, not depending on the situation. It's truth and grace always because we've been transformed by the renewal of Christ and the renewal of our minds through the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's what the wisdom tradition gives us. You see this model that's about what you believe and what you do and seeing that flow into every single aspect of our life, including our digital lives. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting, especially today, you see this happen where people say, you know, he's a lot nicer uh, in person once you get to know him. You know, he's kind of a jerk online. Yeah. Like that should be the last thing said about a Christian. We should be the same person online as we are in person. Why? Because we've been transformed by the blood of Christ. Yeah. And in some ways, who you are online is really who you are because exactly. it's free in your mind of the consequence or the, the it's it's lower risk in some sense. And so you're more free. Your, your heart overflows even more. Um, the title of the book is Following Jesus in a Digital Age. Brother, maybe just a final word on what is Jesus, the way of Jesus say about this How, yeah what you know what are some bullet points in terms of the way of christ the teaching of christ the ethic of christ i suppose um but even just the gospel what does yeah. it speak to our hearts in the midst of this chaos and confusion and complexity yeah, you can't summarize the Christian ethic better than Jesus <laughs> doing it himself. Yeah. Uh, so you see this in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. That is the first and greatest commandment. That right there, that is the summation of the entirety of the Christian ethic. The entirety of the wisdom tradition is to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. How do we do that in a digital age? That's what I try to do in the book is to kind of model some of those things. But some kind of takeaways, kind of big bullet points of the things that people say, well, what do I do? A lot of readers might be surprised that I don't give you a 10 things or a checklist 
to write your relationship with technology. Why? One, because it's probably going to fail. Um, we know that, especially with uh, New Year's resolutions, we see this every <laughs> single year by you know January 2nd, we're all done. I gave up on my resolution. I'll try again next year. One of the things that kind of a misnomer, especially today, but this is really just kind of part of human nature, is we feel like we can kind of make these immediate changes. The problem is, is the bad habits didn't form overnight and the good ones aren't going to form overnight either. It's actually going to habits is something that takes time. Um, Wisdom takes time. Um, It's something that, you know, as Paul tells us to put off the old and to put on the new. So it's not even just saying I'm not going to do this. I'm going to limit all my access there are good things. I actually limit my access to social media. Do I do it perfectly? No. Do I, I have downtime. I have a lot of things kind of practices, but those habits are to point me to something greater and to bigger and to put on new habits, not just to say, I'm not going to do something, but I'm going to start doing something else. Uh, so there's a lot that can happen in that, but I give a couple takeaways. One is to slow down. I think that's an interesting point. And people go, that seems simple and trite and kind of silly. Technology is designed to make your lives faster, better, and more efficient in every single aspect. Well, wisdom isn't efficient. Wisdom is actually pretty slow, something that takes time. Um, And so slowing down to be able to examine and to think deeply about these things is actually something we all desperately need today. And then others kind of as we start to understand how technology is forming and shaping us is doing so in some pretty unique ways. And so instead of a checklist, maybe having conversations. One of the things that's really interesting about technology is it's isolating it's all about me and the individual. Uh, the, the Christian ethic calls us into community with one another. And so slowing down, building community, saying, hey, where are my blind spots? What are the things I'm missing here? Where, what do you, patterns do you see in my life that I might be missing or I might be justifying as needed? And having those communications, not only in our marriages, not only in our families. I know it sounds funny, but um, I've even started to do that with my, my six and four-year-old. Um, it's just to have honest conversations about where I, daddy has failed, uh, where daddy's not doing a good job and that hit home. And I'll tell one little story and be done here. But it was years ago, it was a couple of years ago, my oldest, I think he was probably three or four years old. I had a really bad experience online. Um, we don't have to get into the details, but it was a bad experience. Um, I was being attacked kind of relentlessly. I was really upset about it. And so I had put my phone in the other room and tried to disconnect for a little bit. That's one of the ways technology forms and shapes you is when you start to realize how it's affecting your daily life um, and your attitudes and emotions. But I remember putting my phone in the other room and was trying to play with my kid. I was very, very distracted. And I remember he got up on his own, walked in the other room, grabbed my phone, came back and gave it to me and said, Daddy, you need this. And he had no idea. And I don't even think he probably knew what that was. But the Holy Spirit did. And the Holy Spirit used that to say, man, my kid is seeing me constantly connected to my phone to watch my emotional roller coaster go up and down. He's seeing this and this is shaping his perception of the world. It's shaping what he thinks about relationships and family and things. And so I I would love to say that that magically changed everything in my life. It didn't. But the Holy Spirit used that as one next step in kind of helping me to see that formative power of technology and how we can combat that by thinking through the kind of the wisdom lens uh, throughout Scripture as we seek to follow Jesus well in a digital age. Well, that's the title of the book, Following Jesus in a Digital Age. Jason Thacker is the author. It's available now from B&H. And you mentioned uh, in kind of our pre-prep a few other resources kind of related to this. Why don't you tell our folks about that? 
Yeah, so this book came out in August of 22, Following Juice and Digital Age. It's a really short book. It's intentionally designed for the everyday reader. This is not an academic book. Uh, this is a book that all of us can read. One note on that is that the appendix is just for leaders. So if you're a pastor or a ministry leader, that you have some unique challenges about not only following Jesus in a digital age for yourself, but also for your people. Um, so go read that. That is specifically written for you as leaders. Uh, we also had a Bible study version of the book come out in December of 22. Uh, the six sessions, it's individual and group study, as well as some video components. That's really helpful. And then one of the big questions I always get is, how do we help the next generation, specifically teenagers, to think through some of these challenges about technology? And so I wrote a little book. It's with Christian Focus called A Student's Guide to Social Media. It's really, really small. It's like nine articles, even short articles and getting into issues of TikTok. How do we think through TikTok? That's big in the news. Um, how? What is that doing to us and how should we think through that specifically for teenagers? Uh, so this is designed specifically for them. Parents, this is for you as well. Uh, to think through that. And then for those who want to get even deeper on some of these topics, we have a volume that comes out February 1st of 23. Um, and this book is called The Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics in a Technological Society. It's myself. And I'm joined by 12 other uh, colleagues who wrote essays digging into the depths. And it's an academic book. It's to dig deep into these ideas to see not only how technology is shaping us, but also how is that altering kind of how we think through public, the public square and, and general. So social media over to human rights and misinformation and religious freedom and pornography and a lot of those big questions. What does the Christian ethics say about that? And how do we kind of live out that so that we live our faith authentically in every single aspect, including the public square? Excellent. Excellent. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was fun. As always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, May Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.